Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Clay Skipper, joined by Steve Magnus and Brad Stahlberg. One important piece of admin info is that this is the last time this will be recorded as the Growth Equation Podcast. Starting in the new year, this will be Farewell. So if you guys are trying to find this podcast, you're going to want to search Farewell, not the Growth Equation. And one way to get ahead of that is just go ahead and hit subscribe right now. We have a lot of great new content, a lot of interviews, a lot of roundtables with Brad and Steve, a lot of short bite-sized episodes that are going to teach you guys tools and insights and how to apply them to your life. You'll get all of that and you'll avoid all the confusion if you just hit subscribe right now. So on to today's topic, we are going to be discussing an article that was in The New Yorker. It's a story about Jesse Itzler, who was a very successful businessman and has since become a successful motivational speaker. He headlines conferences, um, hosts multi-day events, runs a lucrative sort of coaching business built on motivating people. So it's about him, but it's more largely, more largely it's a story about America's perennial pursuit of happiness and the big business of selling people self-actualization that runs all the way from churches that sold the prosperity gospel to Tony Robbins to where we are today. So we wanted to talk about that, not only because it's an interesting article, and I think we all enjoyed reading it. It was by Tad Friend. So shout out to the writer. He deserves to be acknowledged there. Um, It's interesting in its own right, but also when you consider that this motivational world sort of juts up against or exists adjacently to, or even inside of the health and wellness industry that the growth equation is also part of, right? So we figured we would talk about the article and then use it to reflect a little bit on what we're about and built on and and hoping to do in the coming year and how we think we're differentiated. So big preamble. I hope that was okay. Hope everyone's still with us. But I'm curious, you guys, it's just your reactions to to this story. I think what it it, it got at to me is really kind of what game you're you're playing at and in this sense like the itzler article outlined a game that i think is like widespread which is like the motivational speaking world which is get us fired up get us some some emotional reaction some emotional response it's in the lines of tony robbins walk across coals you make yourself feel like something is happening and then you walk away and often there's 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 not depth or continuity to it. And the analogy I would use, and this is where I hope we go get into, is actually an analogy. A, a sports psychologist, uh, Brian Zuliger, told me when I was researching Do Hard Things, is he said, when you look at motivation, there's the lighter fluid variety, which... You split you spray some lighter fluid on the on the fire and it's like big fire flames and you're like, oh my gosh, like this is awesome. This is crazy. But then it goes, it it dies down very quickly. And then there's the coals variety, which you don't see much fire. There's a little glow, but coals will burn forever. And I think too often what we do is we go towards the lighter fluid. Because it feels like something big is happening. But what we need to do more so is the coals. And I think at the center, the heart of this article is that distinction. Um, And it's not saying 
there's nuance here. Sometimes, you know, get to get the fire started. We need the lighter fluid is that boost. But if we don't have those long, long lasting burning coals, then it's all for nothing. Not to be confused with the coals that Tony Robbins has people walk on during his motivational conferences. Correct, Steve? That is correct. I mean, we can go into the the uh, physiology of that, but it's actually not that hard of a task. It just has to do with, um, you know, how how fire and coals work. So there is a great quote in here from Tony Robbins that where he says he burns eleven thousand three hundred calories a day on stage, which is preposterous. All right, so I've got a couple of things here. First, on the article itself, I thought it was a great read. Uh, highly recommend listeners read the article. Number two, I think that there is a continuum here. And in this article, to me, Jesse Itzler is really the most serious and thoughtful of all the other motivational speakers profiled. So these other speakers will have you walk on hot coal, a la Tony Robbins, or we'll get to a conference and tell you about their Lamborghinis and play really loud Macklemore on the stage and get everyone dancing and fired up. And then they send them home. And, well, they had a good experience, but why pay $35,000 to go to a conference with a motivational speaker when you could pay $100 to go to a good concert, right? Or an NBA basketball game, sit in the nosebleeds. That's an energizing experience. What Jesse Isler said is, hey, I'm going to do it a little bit different. We're not going to be walking on coals and screaming rah-rah. When you come to my conference, we're going to actually do something that lights you up. We're going to do something hard. And he really built it around this concept of Everesting, which is essentially finding a location that has a mountain that is ideally somewhere between 800, 700, and 1,000 feet. And then you just go up and down the mountain 30 times or 34 times, whatever it takes to get to the height of Mount Everest, right around 30,000 feet. Now, I would argue that that is a step in, a big step in the right direction for what's actually going to lead to a lasting experience or lasting change in someone from just a rah-rah motivational conference. Because you do learn something about yourself when, to quote Steve's book, you do a hard thing. However, and I think that this is where this whole industry falls short, That is just the spark. And that does not necessarily mean you're going to have lasting change. And what I think ends up happening is people chase that spark. So you go to the quarterly Everesting conference and you feel great and you do it. And then you feel great for a few days after. And then without continued support and continued coaching and habits that perhaps aren't as bright and shiny, you don't sustain whatever spark was there. Um, so I both think that Jesse Itzler is doing a hundred times better than so many of the other people in this field. And he does it a very different way than I would do it. I will say one other disclaimer, and then I'll, I'll, I'll turn the mic back over to Clay and or Steve, which is that for some people, a Jesse Itzler Everesting weekend could dramatically change their life. And I really do believe that perhaps not for a well-trained athlete who might find it kind of tedious, but not very hard. But for someone that just has been in the gutter and just is really struggling or is coming off of a divorce or substance use or grief, whatever it is, there is something to say about really shocking the system out. And I have no doubt that for a lot of people, that's what it does. 
But I wouldn't confuse that with becoming a better performer. I would call that no different. I was talking to Steve about the article. It's kind of like going to church and hearing like a phenomenal sermon. Like once you have that insight, you can't unsee it. But generally speaking, unless you practice every single day, that sermon, the first week, it's really front of mind. The first month, maybe you're kind of thinking about it. But by the second month, you've completely forgotten about it. And you have to come back next year to hear it again. And I think that's the trap that a lot of people fall into. And then you become a perennial motivational conference goer. And the article talks about some people spend $150,000 a year going to get fired up. And um, and it's just like, well, I would be more curious, what are you doing day to day in the four walls of your home and in your neighborhood? Yeah. So there's two things that I want to piggyback on there that are, are important, two frameworks. One is is how change happens and occurs. And, and I'm going to simplify it. I know Brad wrote about a lot of this in Master of Change. But to simplify things further is if we look at change, we have perspective changers, which I would call the religious experience, the doing the Everest thing, the big shock to our system that forces us to out of a rut or see things in a different way, right? We do something crazy hard and it's like, oh my gosh, we get this new perspective. Um, but generally what the research shows and experience shows is that like that's a fleeting change. It goes away unless it is supported by what I'd call the small kind of spices of work that occur over time. So I'm going to put this in, as I always do, athletic context. If I want to get better at something athletically, could be running, could be lifting, how do I do that? I stack day after day after day after day after week after month of small spices of just manageable challenges, right? I put in the work, but it's not too challenging. It's something that I can accomplish, you know, consistently most of the time. And then maybe a couple times a year, I do a big change. In my my language in athletics, we call them see God days. You enter a race where you go to the well. You do a workout that pushes your body to see the whole goal is to see what is there. Perspective changer. I think what you're getting at, Brad, and using the religious analogy is it's like having that religious experience, but then not following it up by going to church or studying your religious text or, or whatever have you. Yeah. In the language of master of change, it's order, disorder, reorder. That's how change works. Actually, I first heard that from Richard Rohr who is a religious, spiritual person. So shout out to Richard Rohr. Uh, what these events do is they get you into disorder. There's no doubt about it. Whether it's a psychedelic trip, whether it's singing in tongues at church, or whether it's doing an Everesting thing, like it's going to put you into disorder. It's going to change your perspective. But then to Steve's point, if you just go back to order, if you don't change anything about your daily habits, then you're just going back to order. Like you have to reorder and, um, and that is like the minutia in the daily practice, but not, but, and some people, it takes that kind of big jolt to give them a chance. Um, but it is very interesting that Jesse Itzler's rise to popularity of this Everesting challenge is happening in parallel with people going on ayahuasca retreats with, um, other psychedelic retreats. I mean, all the things that Tim Ferriss talks about in his podcast quite often and at the same time, we're seeing a huge decline in organized religion. And I do wonder if people are essentially just going to get a religious experience, but instead of going to church or synagogue, they're doing it in the most 
like uh, a capitalistic way ever, which is like your religious experience isn't going to make you a better person. It's going to make you a better performer. Uh, it's interesting. And I think there's, I, I think that's spot on. And I think there's also something else to it, which is more experiential, which is just this experience of like feelings, feeling alive, feeling something viscerally that like you're opting into and choosing to do, which we don't have as, as much. I think this is also why there's a boom in, you know, we'll call them like semi-recreational sports, whether it's running marathons, doing all these, you know, challenges, et cetera. Um, because it, it, it's allowing you to feel a cacophony of feelings um, that, that take you out of the day to day of sitting on Zooms, going into the workplace, scrolling too much on your phone, spending eight hours looking at screens. And I think that feeling alive is something that that people chase as well. And then there's one other thing that I want to throw into this uh, framework we, ta- we talked about offline that I think applies here as well, is that when we look at Everesting or conquering, maybe it's running your first marathon or whatever your big thing is, I think what we often do is there's this idea between enduring something and performing at something. And what these conquering type things are, are enduring, which means the whole goal is to get through this thing, is to get to the finish line, is to get my 30,000 feet of Everesting or whatever have you. And there's value in that. But I think if we stay on that enduring thing, we lose out. And instead, like what we have to get to is like this other side, which is performing, which is, is, is it could be as simple as to use the analogy going from trying to finish the marathon to seeing what you're capable of. It could be, you know, to have some purpose behind the activity besides just surviving it. And I think when we make that transition, there's something really important that happens there, which is if any of us wanted to endure something, yeah, we might need a little bit of training technique or whatever have you, but it's really just kind of this mental challenge of like, let's just get through this thing. Even if I have to walk, I'm going to get through this marathon. But when you're performing at something, it pushes you a little bit often towards a more of a path to mastery, which is I'm going to explore this thing. I'm going to see what I'm kind of capable of. I'm going to see what a long-term practice at this thing allows me to accomplish or explore in my own world. And I think too often in these whatever motivational speaking arena things, as we stay on that enduring thing, which again has merit instead of getting to that mastery path. I think that a big part of what makes the growth equation different is just what Steve said about mastery, because that is where you get the spiritual like fulfillment and meaning out of a a pursuit. Um, It's really well-timed. I'm going to read you something that I wrote about mastery in craft work. And for me, I find it in the weight room, but it can be in running. It can be in music. It can be in gardening. You name it. In the weight room, it's just you in the bar. You either make the lift or you don't. If you make it, great. If not, you train more and try again. Some days it goes well, other days it doesn't. But over time, it becomes clear that what you get out of yourself is proportionate to the effort you put in. It's as simple and as hard as that. The arc of progress is long and requires patience, consistency, and vulnerability. The pursuit is best when supported by community. It affords a kind of straightforwardness and self-reliance that gives rise to immense satisfaction 
a fulfilling feeling that makes it easier to fall asleep at night because you did something real and concrete in the world, something that stands on its own. You learn not to rush the lift. Even when you are nervous and the inclination is to jerk it up, you've got to keep your positions and stay with it. An important lesson in the gym, but perhaps even more so in life. And to me, that's what the growth equation is really all about. And that is the nuanced difference between spending a weekend or a day at a motivational conference or doing something really hard and actually getting on, I'm going to call it a sacred path of deliberate practice and really paying attention. And I think that that is a very important difference. Um, To go back to religion, it's maybe the difference between going to church once or twice a year and speaking in tongues and having a mystical experience and becoming more of a contemplative person in your day-to-day life and carving out time to pray and to meditate and to read and to study. And I would argue that it's the latter path that is true spirituality. The former path is what people call a spiritual bypass. And with some of these motivational talks, I wonder if what's happening is you're kind of getting a motivational bypass. It's not the real thing. So what's your inkling of why people like a two-part question for you guys. So why, what's your inkling of why people like to stay in that space? Like why keep going back to the motivational things over and over again? And then also if someone's listening and they like have trouble getting themselves from the uh, lighter fluid to the coals, like what is something they can, they can start to do? Cause I have not, I'm not like a motivational speaker guy, but I have a little bit of this from my addiction to self-help, right? A self-help book kind of gives you the same little tickle of, of motivational speech. It's like, I'm I'm doing something. This is it. I've cracked the code. And then the week, the week later, I can find myself reading another self-help book. And it's like, all right, I'm just going through revolving doors of self-help book. How do I actually get to the, the work or the sacred path, as you call it, Brad? Well, I'm going to take the easier part of the question and leave the hard part for Steve. So why do people do this? Because it feels great. I mean, going to a conference like that and hearing a world-class motivational speaker, which these guys, and I say guys because they tend to be guys, the article points this out, but some women too, these people are, to be clear, they are world-class at motivational speaking. I cannot deliver a talk like Jesse Itzler, Ed Milad, or Brendan Bouchard can. These guys are the best in the world. And um, it's really cool to go see someone get you super hyped and motivated. Uh, The Everesting thing. I mean, think about it, man. If your job is a nine to five office job and it's not super meaningful and you just kind of feel like you're going through the motions and you're starting to gain a little bit weight and you think you drink too much and you've got kids. So like you're not really getting too intimate with your partner and life is just kind of this a la most people between 35 and 55 at some point going to freaking crush yourself physically and climb the equivalent of Everest with a group of other people is really inspiring. So the short answer is people do it because it feels great. And there's nothing wrong with doing it if you can afford it. I think the problem is when you chase that great feeling over and over and over again without addressing the underlying issues or without getting on a path of mastery. I think where this stuff is effective is where you do it once or maybe twice, and then it gets you on a path of mastery. I think where it's not effective is where you just perpetually do this for years on end. I I think something else before getting to the so what or how, how something else that, that comes to mind and it's mentioned in here is that um, a lot of it is like superficial promises that, that feel good, 
that like make you feel like you're making progress without actually making progress and that feel like they give you solutions without getting them. I mean, in here, I don't have the quote in front of me, but there was the, they were talking about running an ultra marathon and, and the advice was essentially tell yourself that you never get tired and that like you feel outstanding and that sounds great. And that might work for some in the moment, but the reality is like, I wrote a whole book about how to how to navigate challenging things. And if that's your go-to, you're going to fail because it's it's not true. You're going to go through some really shitty times running an ultra marathon um, where telling yourself you're great, feel great isn't gonna work. Instead, like facing reality and figuring out how to navigate that is like how you get through it over the long haul. So I think again, there's that distinction between like what feels good in the moment. Versus like what works for mastery performance over the long haul is there. I think, you know, how do we, how do we solve this? I mean, this is the, the, this is what basically every one of Brad and I's books are about is through a different angle is how do you create that long lasting Coles, you know, motivation, that intrinsic drive, that mastery feeling. And it's, it's uh, simple to explain, difficult to do. It's setting up your life so that you have the ingredients, which is like autonomy, you know, mastery, meaning you're chasing something with progress that is meaningful to you and purposeful to you. Um, and then belonging, you're doing it in, in a community or group. And I think the more you can set up your life so that you're taking on challenges to do that, the better off you are. I think one of the practical advices I'd give to people is actually to to take as an adult is to dabble and explore more until you find something that like you want to pursue. I mean, that could be again, athletically lifting weights, running could be, you know, some hobby art, whatever it is, but dabble and explore in that thing until you kind of get pulled towards it. And then as you get pulled towards it, seeing what you can do, like make sure you set up the surroundings. So you have the community, you have some sort of progress, you, you, you aren't doing it to, you know, win X, Y, and Z prize or what have you. And the more you can do that, the better off you're going to be in terms of like finding some sort of mastery in your life. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And the point about the pro the prize is, you know, a point they make in this article is that a lot of people who go to these motivational conferences, it's very aspirational. Like they want the lifestyle, right? It's like, it's not so much about getting strategies and habits as it is like, how do I get your Lamborghini or your money? And I think if you are looking at that as the carrot at the end of the stick, as opposed to like, how do I figure out what sort of practices I can instill in my life? That's one sign that maybe the path you're going on is not going to be as fulfilling or as satisfying as it might otherwise be. And I think that is what separates Jesse Itzler from a lot of the other people mentioned in that story is, um, a lot of the other people are, in my opinion, just like bad because they're essentially selling like a Lamborghini and all this money in pretty women or handsome men and so on and so forth. At least Jesse Itzler is not doing that. Um, at least he's like putting people in a more normal environment and having them do something hard with their body. Uh, but the former group, uh, I think that to be quite frank, that is a grift. Again, that's just my opinion. Other people feel differently. I think back to Morgan Housel, good friend of the growth equation. And um, he 
once said that if you want to be really rich, find people that want to be lied to and lie to them. And I think that that sums up a lot of the characters that were mentioned in that New Yorker article. And that gets at like the really interesting moral question that is the subtext underneath this whole story, right? Because on the one hand, you have people who are just grifting, people who are just selling you brain pills and lying to you and telling you you're gonna, it's gonna get you everything you want. And then on the other side, you have people who are just, you know, actually out here training people and doing the work. And then in the middle, you you have at the end of this article, this this guy who runs a conference that Jesse's at, he has this quote where he says, um, you know, you can think sort of going back to the fact that a lot of people might get inspired and then not follow through afterwards. He says, you can think 90% of the room got inspired and then did nothing with it. Or you can think it's all a funnel. And to change a few lives, you have to go through all the people you're going to lose along the way. And it's like, these people, these motivational people are making a ton of money. And maybe they are inspiring 10%. But they're also making enormous profits in a lot of cases off the other 90%. And it's like, is is that is that a grift or is it not? And I think that is like one of the reasons this article is so interesting is it's like, it's right on that line. Where is the morality here? And I think it, it, it even is more complicated because what may seem like a grift to you and I, the people that are doing it might be doing it in good faith. They might believe what they're selling. I mean, I don't think that everyone that's out there selling the law of attraction, think good thoughts and everything you have will come your way. If you open your mind to beautiful men or women or partners, you'll find them. I mean, I think that's total bullshit. I think some people that are spouting that know it's bullshit, but my guess is 70% of the people spouting that believe it to be true. And they've just found other people that believe it to be true. So I um, have become less judgmental about the person doing this over time, because I think even what seems crazy might be done in good faith. And it doesn't mean that I would recommend it, but at least it's being done in good faith. Um, and back to the article, like not, not to come out and say that people should go do Everesting. Uh, I, I think that there's other ways to get to performance, but compared to a lot of what's happening, I think Jesse Itzler's program is, uh, is not so bad. Now, I think that's another thing that makes the article interesting because you could walk away from it and say, wow, Jesse Israel's like the best guy in this terrible space. But then when you hold up Jesse Israel against evidence-based or Jesse Isler, excuse me, against evidence-based practices, eh, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it would meet the the muster. Um, but then again, you know, Steve and I get paid really good money to go give corporate talks about our books. We're not very motivational up there. Maybe we'd do better if we were more motivational. I'll never forget. I spoke at this big conference, got paid a shitload of money. And the person before me, not going to name names, had people like up and dancing and was super motivational. Okay. And I'm kind of like a deer in headlights because the people were really digging it. And that is just not my style. And I said, all right, like, I'm just going to be honest. And I got up on the stage and I'm like, there's no way that I'm going to be able to follow, I'm going to call him Adam, in Adam's footsteps. But Adam's a special guy, so I want to show a hands. Who wakes up most mornings feeling like Adam? And no one raised their hand. And I said, all right, well, then this talk is for the rest of us. And that was it. And no, no screaming, no dancing. Um, but that's just my show, you know? So who's to say? 
All right. Um, some insights. First off, I want to I want to see Brad up on the stage singing and dancing and screaming and maybe lifting some weights and screaming while doing it. So maybe we need to arrange that. We'll have a growth EQ um, thing where where we make the audience lift some weights with Brad and go crazy. I can't even I can't even do it at the gym. The joke at my gym is that when it's time for me to do a PR, they should turn on dashboard confessional is the music. <laughs> Brad, living in the 2000s emo era. All right. I don't know how to pivot off that, but a couple of other thoughts I had on this that I think tie into this a little bit is I think you're right on the nuance here. And the one thing I would say is I think, you know, I wrote a book, Do Hard Things. Doing hard things is important. And I think that that's where this Everesting gets in there. But if I could add one caveat to it is it's more important to have, do purposeful hard things. So Eversting is great. It's a perspective changer maybe for you, but there's really no purpose behind it besides like getting really tired and like, you know, doing it with other people and seeing what happens. I would argue that doing something purposefully that is difficult is much more life-changing because it puts you on that path to mastery. And it's not to say that sometimes you don't need that motivational rah-rah to get you jolted, to get you going, to change that perspective, to maybe get you on that path. But if you don't go down that path of like, how do I put in the work? How do I do this thing? How do I pursue this thing? Like change isn't going to happen. The thing that comes back to me is, okay, as a former college and then high school coach, having you know done that for, I don't know, 15 years of my life and then seen kids who are now grown adults with families, like what, what causes the lasting change? It wasn't like some rah-rah speech that I gave, right? It was the experience of going after something with the community over the long haul. And then you talk to kids now adults like 15 years later and they're like oh remember that like that that season or those races that we took on or or that work that we had to do like i learned x y and z and i still do that you know in a different capacity you know maybe they still run maybe they exercise in a different route maybe they take on you know a challenge in a different way but they're taking those lessons forward that they learned during those things so to me i think the world would be a better place if we had less motivational speakers, um, and more high school coaches. (laughs) I'm curious what, what, what got those kids motivated though? Like if you were, if you were like, is, are these people all intrinsically motivated? Like, can you get someone who is not intrinsically motivated to be motivated? Is that that a case? Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, that's high school cross country. Who in the hell signs up to say, Hey, I'm going to go run distance. It's all the weird, weird, nerdy kids who have no other sport that they can do. Not necessarily. Sometimes they're good at soccer and transfer over. Okay. I'm speaking in generalities, but no one's super motivated. I mean, I wasn't intrinsically motivated. I remember the first run I did as a high schooler, uh, a older, a senior on the team dragged me out because he was family friends and said, Hey, you need to get in shape if you're going to run cross country. And I said, okay. And I ran two miles, stopped and threw up and walked home and said, this sucks. Um, and I think this is maybe a bigger conversation of what, what we look at motivation. Motivation doesn't occur as a spark in the moment. I mean, it can for some stuff, but it's, that's not what happens. What happens is you get those kids motivated because you get them hooked up. You say, Hey, they kind of suck. They kind of don't like it, but how do I get this kid to keep showing up, keep showing up, keep showing up? Because 
They're going to be part of a community. They're going to start having fun with friends on runs, during warm-ups, socializing. They're going to take on challenges and see themselves grow and have progress. Sometimes that means running faster. Sometimes that means like doing things that they didn't think they were capable of, running longer, whatever have you. Um, <coughs> and they're going to they're gonna go through all the emotions. They're going to be vulnerable. They're going to succeed. They're going to cry. They're going to fail. But they're going to have people around them to support them. And what happens inevitably is if you can get someone to go through a season of that their freshman year, all of a sudden they're bought in because they're like, oh, this is cool. And then after that comes the desire, often the desire to compete, to get better. It's They become students of the sport because they're now interested in it because they're part of this community that is interested in the thing. So again, that's why I say we need more high school cross-country coaches or other sport coaches, but I'm biased. Um, because like you want to talk about motivation, like how do you get people, how do you get a bunch of teenagers to show up and put in again? I ran a hundred miles a week in high school. It was crazy. I did it. And I, w- I wasn't the only one. I had a whole bunch of teammates who ran 70, 80, 90 miles a week as well. And we were, it was not the smartest thing to do, but like no one was telling us to do it. We'd show up at random places to go run in, in the morning and evening, like every every night of the summer when we had no coaches. Why? Because like the environment around you supports it. So I think we need more of that for adults in whatever whatever endeavor you're pursuing. And yeah. we know this too, because all of the evidence points towards this, right? Like acceptance and commitment therapy is the gold standard model for what I would call behavior slash feeling change. Over a thousand studies from performance to depression to anxiety um, to burnout, you name it. And what does acceptance and commitment therapy say? It says, accept how you're feeling, whatever it is, even if you're not motivated, know your values and show up and act in alignment with your values. And if possible, do it in a group. Take your feelings along with the ride. It doesn't say change your feelings to get super motivated. It says, accept that often you're not going to be motivated and that's okay. Behavioral activation, a huge part of acceptance and commitment therapy. What does it say? Motivation follows action, not the other way around. George Leonard, one of the great writers on mastery. What does he liken motivation to? An easy chair. Why an easy chair? Because when you first sit in it, it's not so comfortable. But after 10 years of sitting in it, you groove right in. None of those people are talking about going to a weekend-long conference. So just to play a little bit of provocative devil's advocate, and this will be more pointed than than my actual belief, but I can imagine someone reading this story, and we've already talked around a little bit just to make it explicit. I can imagine someone reading this story and being like, Jesse Itzler recommends some of the some of the same things that like we recommend at the growth equation. And so I'd just be curious to hear us articulate why what we're doing is is different. And also, like I think from Tony Robbins, it's a little obvious, but I think it's a little blurrier. The lines are a little more blurred with with Jesse Itzler. And so I think it'd be useful for us to say like why we think what we're doing is different. I'll I'll start. I mean, I think number one is, and again, I'm going to go back to the the ultra marathon example that they used in there of like, 
I never get tired, you know, feel outstanding is we're like, to use the analogy, we're like the high school cross country coach acknowledging the reality of the situation that people face. That it is going to suck, that you're going to show up some days at practice when you don't want to, that some days you're not going to want to run your race, that some races you're going to think about quitting or stepping in that hole or like hiding in the tent so that you don't have to show up. And what we're trying to do is meet people where where they're at and say, like, that's a reality for all of us. That's a reality for the best performers of uh, in history of all time. You talk to world-class marathoners, they talk about wanting to duck into the porta potty during the middle of marathons that they end up winning. Like we're, we're, we're dealing with reality and I'm not saying that it's or others that aren't, but I think we're dealing with reality and coming up or teaching people a variety of tools to utilize instead of saying, this is the answer. This is the best thing. You know, it's kind of like what Brad and I have outlined in our most recent books where we say, you know what? The best thing you can do is assemble a ton of tools, figure out how to use them. And then when life throws something at you, just start cycling through them and see what works. Because sometimes, you know, the hammer is going to work. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you're going to need the screwdriver. Sometimes it won't. Sometimes you're going to need to pull out this esoteric, crazy tool that you've only used once and that sounds really weird. And that will get you through this moment. And I, and I think that, that, that that's the thing. And I think that that's why there's a lot of overlap because some of the things that Itzler and and others explain, like they're good tools to have, but they're not the only tool and they're not going to work all the time. So you better diversify or else you're going to reach a point where you're kind of screwed. I would say that where we have some overlap, it tends to be in motivation, but Jesse Itzler per the article He is a motivational speaker and like a motivational coach. He's not a performance coach. He's not interested in performance. The growth equation, we're all about performance, right? It's getting the best out of yourself on the things that matter to you most over the long haul. And motivation is just a part of that. But we know that if you over-index on motivation or you make it the whole of performance, you're going to end up in a place that you probably don't want to be. And I think it's really clear. Who is Jesse Itzler's kind of... um, Zen Obi-Wan Kenobi. Who did he learn from? David Goggins, the Navy SEAL. And what is David Goggins world-class at? Enduring and being motivated. Who do we learn from? We have graduate degrees from one of the best schools of public health and exercise science, respectively, in the country. Who do we counsel? World champion athletes, not people who are huge on Instagram for motivating, but people who are winning world championships in their sport. So it's just a slightly different goal, I'd say. And I would say that if your goal is short-term motivation being really fired up and you feel like you need that, then yeah, go go put on Goggins really loud and let him get you fired up. We're not saying there's anything wrong with that. Goggins has helped a lot of people, tons of people. All that we're saying is that is just a portion, a small portion of performance, of meaning, of texture, of getting the most out of yourself. It's not the whole thing. And I think sometimes it's the easy thing. So people over-index on that. Yeah, I would just add to that to extend the Goggins metaphor. I think that as someone who came to you guys after you'd started it and so have sort of an outside view, I find it 
the approach a little bit more accessible. And I think a thing that Steve, you mentioned in your book, and we talk about a lot, I think it originally came from Brian Barrazzo. So shout out is raising the floor, right? And so the idea here, like of having a toolbox that allows you to have consistently stack consistent good days, but doesn't require you to be David Goggins. Because exactly, Brad, I think you said it so well, like he's great for some people. I'm not one of those people. I'm not going to go out and be able to be a David Goggins and blast through the roof every time. I'm someone who's going to be better served by being able to raise my floor. And I think that's what happens here is like we give a robust toolbox so that you can deploy these things and problem solve, figure out what you need to problem solve for a certain situation and help you just slowly incrementally build and get better rather than going out and running 200 miles across Death Valley because most people can't do that. And if you can do it, it's great for you. Or if it gets you motivated to go do it, also great for you. But I do feel like the approach here I have found to be a little bit more accessible and realistic. So one funny little bit to to end this on maybe is that in the story, Itzler says um, he's a big believer in the power of mindset, which we are too. Um, And he's in, I'm quoting now, but I'm reading from Tad Friend's article. He insists that in the right frame of mind, he could outrun his friend LeBron James in a hundred mile race. Quote, and now this is Jesse talking, LeBron, Kobe, Michael Jordan, I beat them all at their peak. Uh, I want it way more than any pro athlete would. What do they have to gain by going through all the suffering to be the 55-year-old guy? So I, I ask you two, would you beat LeBron James in a 100-mile race? Of course not. And the answer, I don't even have to give the answer. It's later on in the article. Chris Paul, another NBA basketball player, has a beautiful parenthetical when he's being interviewed and essentially says, Jesse Itzler's a great dude, but if LeBron trained for like, like even half a day, he'd whoop his ass in anything. And um, that's how I feel. Who would win in a 100-mile race versus me or LeBron? Right now, neither of us, because neither of us have trained for it. It would wreck us both. Who would win if they trained? Of course, LeBron. He's a genetic freak. Now, Steve is probably going to have a different answer because Steve has genetics that are different than mine. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd kick LeBron's ass. Um, but, but that for real, you would, no, who cares? That's the point. I mean, but but that's, that's the, I mean, I should, right. I mean, I, I'm a runner. I ran a four minute mile when I was 18. Like, yeah, it's a hundred miles, but I ran, as I said, I ran hundred plus mile weeks for years. Like I should beat LeBron even not in my peak because like, he's not a peak endurance athlete. Like why, why would he beat me even if he trained for it like it still kicks his ass but that's the that's that's the point is it has nothing to do with mindset it has it has interject real quick to like make this so clear (laughs) steve the last i know steve very well the last thing steve wants to do is run 100 miles he doesn't want it at all jesse itzler wanting it like the most important thing in the universe versus steve being forced out there not wanting it at all Steve would beat Jesse Itzler by a thousand percent. I have no doubt. Yeah, it, it, it it's true. He like, doesn't I, want it. <laughs> no, I I have no desire to go run a hundred miles. I have none. But but if 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 you know it was put up for whatever reason, I had to do it. Of course, I'd beat Jesse Itzler. Um, and and that and that that gets to the the nuance that we try and get at at the growth equation here is like, yeah, mindset's important, but. It's one small part of the the puzzle, right? 
And if I, if we sit here and say, oh, I want it more than LeBron, so I'm going to do this. Like, I could want to be the best basketball player on the planet more than LeBron, and he'd kick my ass. And you know what? I'm going to bring this again, sorry, back to coaching. But you know the hardest thing for people to deal with when you're coaching college or even elite athletes is athletes who are pretty dang talented putting all this work, and then they look over to Johnny or Susie over there who is one of the most talented freaks in the world, who doesn't want it that much, who trains just enough, and they will kick whoever's ass. And you realize, oh, if that person trained more, they'd be like world class, but they they don't. And that's your puzzle to figure out. But like the underlying like talent that often distinguishes, you know, people, I don't think most people understand. Now, it between very talented or similarly talented people, sure, mindset, motivation, etc., you know, matters. But between the groups, between, you know, people with different level of talent like the talent is going to rise to the top yep i was gonna just to to tie the bow on this one people of equal talent in training of course the person that wants it more is going to perform better but that assumes that there's equal talent in training and this brings up one of my favorite hypotheticals of all time if clay you decide to cut it out you can but for the sports fans on the podcast i have Plenty of good source information, people that traveled with the team, that Allen Iverson truly did not want it at all. If Allen Iverson had really wanted it, if Allen Iverson had a LeBron James or Ray Allen mindset, would Allen Iverson have been the best basketball player ever? I mean, he didn't practice. Practice. That's like the famous thing. He played his ass off in games. But imagine if Allen Iversons would have had the LeBron James or Michael Jordan obsession would he have been the best ever? And there's no answer to that question, um, but it's a fun one to to raise. You know, and I'll just say this. I've seen, not in basketball, but in other sports, especially in track, I've seen people who are ungodly talented who probably could have been among the best in the world if they they cared. Um, and, and that is part of it. Maybe they needed to go to Jesse Itzler thing. Um, I don't, I don't know. Maybe that that's who this is for. Allen Iverson should have done it in his peak or whatever track athlete I'm talking about should have gone there, might've changed their world and they would have been best, best in history. Who knows? But like that, that's kind of what the, the, the nuance is all about is like, sometimes like you got the talent, sometimes you got the motivation and no talent. Um, but the real magic occurs in the LeBron, the Kobe's, the Michael Jordan, who combine that talent and uh, and that again that inner intrinsic drive? This isn't no lighter fluid with with a Kobe. It is intrinsic drive to be the best. So to bring it full circle, I think just yeah, articles in the New Yorker. I really like the metaphor that Steve used at the top of lighter fluid, big flame goes out quickly versus the burning coals that you have to keep feeding. And I think if you guys want some fuel to keep feeding, we have it here at the Growth Equation. We have a lot of big things coming in the new year. Um, you're going to get all the same great stuff you've been getting and have come to know and love, and you're going to be getting more. If you want to find this podcast, it's going to be called Farewell starting in the new year. Again, if you subscribe now, you can avoid the headache of and confusion of having to try to find it. But wishing you all a happy and healthy holidays. 
I know I can speak for myself. I think I can also speak for Brad and Steve when I say it's so fun for us to come on here and have these discussions and share them with you. So thank you for listening. Have a healthy and happy new year. We are excited for so many big things in 2024. So we'll see you then.